the disintermediation and the kind of distribution amongst many seems to be the, the model that we all want to move towards. So that democratization where it's not one person who owns the power, it's a decentralized power um, of issuing credit, issuing loans, issuing money, um, saving money, transferring money, all of those things have been highly centralized because it's government money. Well, here's a system like Bitcoin, which is not government money. And it's because of Bitcoin, it's created a whole world around it. And it's just us hurtling into this new world of the digital transfer of value. So that's not just moving Bitcoin around and saving it. It's uh, everything that we do is about to change. Welcome to the Bitcoin Basics podcast with your hosts, Ferris and Gordon from CoinCompass.com, enabling you to safely buy and securely store your Bitcoins. All resources are in the show notes and description, including our disclaimer. Visit BitcoinBasicsPodcast.com to subscribe and discover other free content. Okay. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone, and welcome to another Bitcoin Basics podcast with your host, Gordon. That's me, and I have Faris with me as usual. Before we get started, our proof of recording is the Bitcoin price is currently 46,885 US dollars, and the current block height or block number of the Bitcoin blockchain is 669,076 blocks. We just interviewed Raul Powell, who uh, Faris got super excited about, as did I, um, not being an investor, but um, his his content on Real Vision was amazing. And we had a fascinating uh, discussion with Raul. But uh, Faris, how did you see that one? Uh, this was very enjoyable. And uh, Gordon saw it. And anyone listening, you can hear me gushing on this one. Uh, I've been a subscriber to Real Vision for five years now. So I've been, um, yeah following Rao's work on an almost daily basis since then. And he is an incredible mind. And not only that, he shares so much. Um, and yeah, something I, I wanted to mention during the interview, but I didn't. But the people that Rao, like himself, and that we have on this show, like Mark Yusko, normally to speak to these people, you'd have to invest millions of dollars into their fund or hundreds of thousands of dollars into their newsletter. And they're actually imparting their wisdom for free. And that's huge. Um, and so we actually talked about this. We talked about the democratization of financial knowledge, moving in and how that relates to decentralization. So we talked obviously about Bitcoin, talked about global markets. Um, yeah, the more things came up, the more questions I had that it just, um, yeah, it became pretty overwhelming. But that's just um, the measure of Rao's experience and wisdom. Yeah, and I went really, really quickly. So without further ado, here's the interview. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like, and share so we can find others like yourself. Yeah, well, let's just get straight into it. So um, Raul Powell, tell us about yourself and perhaps why you started Real Vision. Yeah, I'm the uh, CEO and co-founder of Real Vision Group. Um, it's a financial media company that spans everything from crypto to all of the traditional markets, but maybe focuses on the top-down kind of global macro elements. My background from all of this is I was 
for a long time, 30 years in financial markets. So I was at Goldman Sachs, where I started and ran the hedge fund sales business in equities and equity derivatives. I then started and ran a global macro hedge fund for the largest hedge fund firm in Europe at the time called GLG Partners. Did that for several years and then opted out the rat race and moved to the Mediterranean coast of Spain, where I started my uh, writing institutional uh, macroeconomic research and investment strategy for the world's biggest hedge funds, family offices, sovereign wealth funds, asset managers, governments, that kind of stuff. Um, and it was really over the time I was in Spain that a lot happened. I was start, I arrived there in 2005. By 2008, the world had fallen apart, and I had been lucky enough to be one of the people predicting that and knowing what was happening. Um, and I'd written extensively about it. A lot of the people who... Um, we're in like the film The Big Short, were clients of mine. Everyone kind of knew what was going on. I was also there for the European crisis in 2012 when we almost lost the entire banking system of Europe um, over a terrifying six-month period. And again, I knew what was happening. People at the core of the financial system, particularly the hedge funds, knew. Um, but people came up to me in the street, friends of my parents, friends of friends, said, why didn't we know? And that sat really badly with me. You know, the Occupy Wall Street movement had really started gathering speed as well. And I realized that there was a tectonic shift where people didn't trust those in control of the knowledge, i.e. the banks, the brokerage houses, uh, even the media companies. And that trust had evaporated and people knew that they had to take control of their own finances. Uh, Dying, dying were the days where you would give your lifetime savings to a random guy you'd met once before in his office, and he came back and reported how much money he'd made or lost for you. That wasn't really responsible. So people knew that they needed more, but there was nowhere to go. So the idea behind Real Vision was to democratize that very best financial intelligence and then give it to everybody. So what that really means in practice is we interview the smartest, most successful people in the world, in the whole financial marketplace, and whether it's the world's most famous hedge fund managers, asset managers, strategists, analysts, and we ask them, A, the learnings from their career, what they do, how they got there, the mistakes that they made, but also how they're thinking about the world now. We try and make sense of this complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. So it's a basically a video-based uh, channel, but with... Um, with written research, a community, and a whole bunch attached, live events, everything. Now, Faris, just before, Faris has got a million questions. So for, for our listeners and for you, Raul, as well, I'm the tech guy. I, I have a background in computer science. Uh, Faris is economics and finance. Do you find it fascinating how uh, people come from different sort of perspectives into Bitcoin? And uh, perhaps maybe, oh, before I even ask that, how did you first learn about Bitcoin or acquire your first Bitcoin? So I was in Spain in 2012. And I realized at that point that the financial system was broken. And it's not broken just from the monetary printing, which is where a lot of people come into the whole Bitcoin thing. I actually came at a much deeper level in terms of the entire plumbing of the financial system. Meaning when you buy or sell a security, a share of something, who custodies it? How does that work? What is all this stuff called collateral and margin? How does this all interplay? Who owns anything in the financial system? 
And I got caught out in the MF Global a futures brokerage house that went under when I thought I had a segregated account. So my money was protected from MF Global should they default or go bust. The reality was I wasn't protected. So that made me realize we got some big, big problems. So I started um, to set up with a group of others, some family offices and some hedge fund guys, the world's safest bank. And in that process, and that's not easy to do. And in that process, a client of mine from Global Macro Investor, another ex-Goldman guy, said, you need to look at Bitcoin properly. And I'd looked at Bitcoin and written about it, and I kind of got that it was the new digital gold. And I'd written some articles back in early 2013. Um, but at that point, or maybe even 2012, I wrote about it. But at that point, he said, listen, the answers are all here and explained blockchain. And once I understood blockchain and the power of Bitcoin itself, I was like, okay, this is it. So I started investing in the space in 2013, um, and I've been in the space on and off ever since. Um, now, most people come into this space from different things. I and mean, what I love about this space is here are, here's a, you guys are exactly that computer science guys, engineers, finance guys have all come into it. It started off really with the computer science guys. Then it was the philosophical Austrian economists, philosophy of money guys who wanted something different. And that was an adjunct really to the gold community that hated fiat money and a whole bunch of other things and, and thought that it created societal issues. So those are the first two groups and they merged pretty quick. You know, even from the Satoshi white paper and his conversations onwards, um, you could see that there was that libertarian bent to it that it started from owning your own money uh, and money that doesn't get devalued by others but what happened was as more people in the technology world realized particularly in silicon valley people like wences casera started kind of infecting silicon valley with hey we could apply an engineering mindset to the problems of the financial system and create a much better solution which is the typical Silicon Valley grandiose idea, but Bitcoin really is part of that. And then it started infecting, I think Wentz has probably infected Dan Moorhead next, who is a famous macro investor, um, came from one of the biggest macro hedge funds in the world, another ex-Goldman guy, and Dan got it, closed his hedge fund and said, I'm going entirely into this space. Everyone said, are you crazy? But one by one, the finance guys, particularly the macro guys, people from MySpace, macro are the people who look at all investment classes around the world and say, where's the best place to allocate capital? We all looked at this and said, okay, here's a new asset. It has a massive potential upside because if we're talking about an asset that is money and the financial system, then this could be much bigger than people realize. And the returns from the space, i.e. how much money you can make from it, we're dwarfing all other assets because of this potential for this huge upside. Um, and so one by one, we all started falling down that rabbit hole, uh, infecting each other. So I probably got Mark Yusko, Dan Tapiero, and a bunch of others across the line. You know, and so we all kind of did that and spread and et cetera. And, and then I've always said that the worlds of macro and crypto were going to collide. There's another revolution that started in the middle of that, which was fintech, which was financial technology, which was not part of the Bitcoin world. It was just changing things, turning them to apps, making it a bit more decentralized, a bit different. 
But those three paths were going to meet at one point. And I always said the point was the next recession when everything like monetary printing goes extreme. And so lo and behold, March 2020, the event horizon all meets. And everybody's now sitting together on a Zoom call from different walks of life saying, well, we're all in this together now. And that is what it's all about. Awesome. Raul, I really took something to heart that you just mentioned there. And that is, um, well, two things. One is the democratization. Um, and this is where I think we'll talk about real vision in a moment, how I think it falls into this place, but Bitcoin as well with democratization and decentralization. So we saw 16th century, the democratization of political power or decentralization of 100 years later, democratization of land. And what we're seeing today, and this is where real vision comes in, is the democratization of financial knowledge. Because as you mentioned, not everyone could afford subscription services to GMI and all these other houses. Um, But something else you mentioned there, so that is just a thank you to Real Vision, who we've I've been subscribed to five years because it really opened my eyes to what is going on in the markets. Things don't make sense right now. Um, but you mentioned, with reference to European banking system, we almost lost it. Mark Yusko on our show actually recently mentioned in the US the same thing. We almost had a calamitous collapse of the system. Do we actually need to have a collapse before we have a reset? No. We just have to set up, and we've done it, you know, last year was pretty bad as well, not so much for the banking system, but the financial system was creaking at the seams again. And the European, and then 2008, and the dysfunctioning Japanese banking system, they are markers. Look, the central banks are not going to let them go under. So there's a fight, and the fight that they've used is monetary stimulus. But everybody knows that there's too much fragility. So what it allows us to do is build a parallel financial system. So it's not we switch from one to the other because one fails. It's we build a better one and people migrate. That's really what's going on. So much so that the central banks are doing it themselves by building central bank digital currencies. They're not really there in competition with things like Bitcoin. What they are is an acknowledgement that a new digital future allies the financial system. And that digital future allows for wholesale change. Within wholesale change, as you rightly identified, the disintermediation and the kind of distribution amongst many seems to be the the model that we all want to move towards. So that democratization where it's not one person who owns the power, it's a decentralized power um, of issuing credit, issuing loans, issuing money, um, saving money, transferring money, all of those things have been highly centralized because it's government money. Well, here's a system like Bitcoin, which is not government money. And it's because of Bitcoin, it's created a whole world around it with all of the other, um, all of the other cryptocurrencies, all of the digital architecture. And it's just us hurtling into this new world of the digital transfer of value. So that's not just moving Bitcoin around and saving it. It's uh, everything that we do is about to change. Yeah, that's something in the um, like public lectures and seminars that Gordon and I do when we actually explain to people half the world's adult population do not have access to a bank account, but there's $7 billion mobile phones. 
and then you show them how to move Bitcoin from one cell phone to another, and you can see it on the blockchain, that's a big aha moment for people. This is the future where, yeah, you don't need to open a bank account. You don't need that third party. Um, so I know you mentioned like uh, Dan Moorhead, Mike Novogratz, all these guys that got in early. We are in this bull run. I think the narrative for this bull run will be institutional funds, institutional firms coming into this Bitcoin market. What was a tipping point? What changed their mind to finally get everyone else on this bandwagon? Yeah, I think I probably coined the term the wall of money that that people now use. It was the realization from many that Bitcoin was not going away. Many had seen it. And look, the hedge fund managers, the macro guys are a very influential group. They're very highly regarded. Uh, they manage a lot of capital and they're very well connected. And those guys all bought it themselves first because uh, they couldn't get it into their funds. And then people started figuring out how to get it into their funds. And as soon as that happened, once the hedge funds, who are basically the pioneers of the space, of the money management space, once they started putting it into their portfolios, then it meant the institutions probably wanted to too. So we started with the first hedge funds, most of them below the radar screen you weren't aware of. There were a bunch of crypto hedge funds, different. But this is like a macro guy saying, I want this asset. So a few of them started doing it. So some like Pete Brigger at Fortress, Novos, um, Alan Howard, Brevin Howard, all these kind of legends, built, and John Burbank built side businesses because mm-hmm. they couldn't get it into their hedge funds. Then Paul Tudor Jones announced he'd done it by using futures contracts. And that was a light bulb moment for everybody. It's like, oh, Christ, we can all do this. Because Bitcoin itself had spent so long saying, not your keys, not your wallet, blah, 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 blah. When in fact, an institution just needs a futures contract as a way to do it. Because the cash settled futures contract doesn't mean it's a bearer asset. They don't have to deal with it, but they get the economics of it. So that started the race. Once Paul announced it, then it was heard that Stan Druckermiller had also done it. And then one by one, the hedge fund started. If the hedge funds start, then people like BlackRock go, hmm, we need to do this too, because we, we're we in the business of generating alpha. So that was the wall of money. Then the corporate treasurers started getting involved, and then the insurance companies. And we're still incredibly early. So I could talk about a wall of money, but basically it's the first few bricks of that wall. Uh, you know, We've got this massive, massive wall of money coming as everybody starts tipping. The next big one we've seen is Tesla, one and a half billion. We saw Ruffer in the UK um, with 650 million. I mean, these are pretty big bets, but the asset management industry is gigantic. We're talking tens of trillions of dollars. And for them to start allocating 1% of assets, it's a big number. So with that, role, if we now have more money coming in and we are seeing this appreciation of the price of Bitcoin, and estimates are anywhere from 100,000 to 500,000 in this current bull run. Will this scare away your everyday investor who thinks, I've missed it, it's now too expensive. It's an elitist coin. I think that all of us have a job to explain to people that you don't need to own a Bitcoin. Um, and I, I, we've all got a job to do. I know people have argued about, do we call them Satoshis or bits and how do we do it? The problem is, is eight decimal places doesn't help either because it feels like nothing. So 
we've got a communication problem at this phase and that's okay. Bitcoins have many of these, you know, one of the ones I talked about was we were speaking the wrong language for institutions. And, you know, I went out and got commissioned a whole paper so institutions could understand how it fits into asset allocation portfolios. We need to do a better job with this part now because people are going to go, I can't afford a whole Bitcoin. We should be letting people think about tenths of Bitcoins at its simplest level. Um, You know, and yes, it will spill into other parts of this space because they say, oh, Ethereum's cheaper, whatever it is. That's okay too, as long as people do their homework. There are some great other um, um, digital currencies um, out there that aren't Bitcoin. They don't look like Bitcoin. They're not supposed to have the role of Bitcoin, but they are also a stake in the future of the global financial system that we're talking about. So, you know, that also broadens out. And the more money comes into the space, the more the technology advances, the faster we get to this event horizon. So it's good. We've got a communication problem with it. But my guess is stuff like the launches of the ETF, you can then do a share split on the ETF. And that will change people's minds. Because then you can issue the ETF not at, where are we right now? 46,400. You could issue it at 46 bucks. Right. It's simple, simple as that. The ETF is an easy way of getting around that problem, and people start thinking in those terms. So just on that, uh, Raoul, we interviewed Stephen McClurg from Valkyrie. Well, they, they've just submitted the ETF, um, and there's VanEck as well. What happens when or if the SEC approves an ETF? Is that going to change a lot, or uh, what do you think is going to happen there? Um, the entire investment advisor space is going to pile into Bitcoin. Um, So it's going to create an enormous amount of demand. Some of that demand will be preceded by um, Coinbase, because Coinbase IPO will get a lot of people able to invest basically in the crypto space by that. Mm -hmm. So that will steal some of the thunder. But overall, it's going to allow people to get into the space. Um, So there's going to be a lot of people. Now, once the ETF trades, then... Everybody can trade it. So every hedge fund, every asset manager, everybody. So what you'll see is a change in the price structure because you'll have different people with different time horizons, less of the um, people like you and I who probably take our coins off exchange and just sit on them. There'll be a lot more two-way liquidity. So the volatility will probably come down. The upside gappiness will probably reduce somewhat eventually. Initially, it'll drive the upside gappiness even worse because there's no more supply, but a lot more demand. But then over time, the market will become a lot deeper, a lot more liquid, a lot less volatile, still relatively volatile, um, and the market structure will change. Maybe these halving cycles will change as well. We don't know. Interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll let Faris go into the price and what that will do to the price. But just from a custody point of view, and, and you talked about custody before, and Quick plug, coincompass.com. That's our entire business is custody solutions. Um, will, I mean, with a Bitcoin ETF and, and institutions can pile into that, will that sort of change, I guess, the mindset of, of you know, what Bitcoin is, sort of a, a bearer asset to, oh, well, I'll just leave my, you know, money in the bank, therefore I'll leave my Bitcoins on Coinbase well, or something like that. Will is, the good thing about Bitcoin, it can be anything you want it to be. So I think of it, like gold, and I've called, referred to gold as your personal reserve asset because you can buy it and store it in your house or in a vault, or you can buy an ETF, or you can store it in somebody else's vault. So right. you choose. And Bitcoin, you choose. 
Now, in the end, we know that there's more regulation coming. So there'll be privacy variations of how to wrap it in something else. So you choose where you want to be, what your accessibility is to the existing financial system, the level of security that you want. So it's just, it's, 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 it's your menu of risk and you can choose it as you want. Ease of use versus security, other trade-offs. Yeah, this is something that we've started thinking about over here is, and Gordon's come up with this, that there might come a time where you won't be able to get your Bitcoins off an exchange. And that's something we're preparing our clients for. The other thing is, what challenges will institutional funds, if you're buying Bitcoin on behalf of someone else, what challenges are they facing now? Or do you think they will face it? They need to prepare for I think the the biggest weak point is if there's a global ruling that banks are not allowed to accept proceeds from Bitcoin. Right? That's a huge problem. There are banks here in the Cayman Islands who will not let you, and banks in the UK, HSBC, will not let you put back into your account proceeds made from Bitcoin. That's a big problem because the world doesn't yet operate on on Bitcoin pricing standards. Yes, you can now buy a Tesla. You know, you can buy stuff, but it's not it's really not functioning as money. It's functioning as a store of value and a reserve asset. So, look, that is a huge problem. But once an ETF is launched, once BlackRock owns it, once, you know, XYZ pension plan owns it, it's very hard to stop that. So all they so you have to go back and say what is the government's want by regulating? Do they see a one trillion or seven hundred and fifty billion dollar asset as the threat? No. What they don't want is tax avoidance, because governments have had to pay for COVID and a bunch of other stuff, and they're all bust. So they just want their share of taxes. So if they can regulate it and say I don't want you laundering money and I want you to pay taxes then if you can accept that, then you should be allowed free on-ramps and off-ramps into the fiat economy. If you don't accept that, then you have less choices of what you can do with your Bitcoin. Again, it's all part of the menu of risks that you want to accept compared to what you want to do. We actually had that very scenario that you just described where we had to help someone who um, had a relationship with one, one of Australia's largest banks for 20 years, um, bought Bitcoin, spoke to the bank. So because the bank's concern was, are you actually buying Bitcoin? Do you know how to put it on your wallet? So he knew what he was doing, knew, had these several conversations with the banks. So they knew he was buying Bitcoin. He then went to apply for another home loan with this bank. And as part of his income, he had made profits in Bitcoin. Within two hours, he gets a call from the bank saying, we're canceling your credit card. We're closing all your accounts. It was all right for you to buy Bitcoin, but as soon as you're making proceeds from Bitcoin, we don't want anything to do with you. So he's now gone, F the banks, I want to go full crypto. So looking at, you know, BlockFi, Binance cards, all this kind of stuff. Now, at what stage do you think banks might go, how about we start working with this thing and not against it? I think that's coming. Look, the space is moving too fast for the banks. That's actually the problem here. And so the banks are like, whoa, 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 slow down, everybody. You know, we don't know how to do our KYC. We don't know how to do our AML. We don't want to get prosecuted, right? That's all HSBC are doing. They've got no nefarious, you know, master plot 
they're like, listen, we don't want to get prosecuted. HSBC have been prosecuted enough. They're like, just give us time to get our shit together. That That's really what's going on. They don't want to fall foul of the regulators, nor does anybody. That's why I keep saying regulation is crucial for this space to develop. Whether the original libertarian philosophers agree with that or not, it's irrelevant. If you want it to become a core part of the financial system, then you're going to have to accept regulation. That is the world we live in. Yeah, I agree with that, Raoul, and, and I'm, a, I'm a libertarian as well. But uh, I think in one of your podcasts, you actually said, you know, if the internet sort of wasn't regulated, would all the ID cards or licenses just actually get online? So I can I can definitely see that, you know, as, as sort of being a good thing. Um, I, I want to take us back a little bit and ask you how you retired at 37 years old. Well, I kind of semi-retired. So, you know, I was in the grind, you know, hedge fund life. It's hard, exhausting, and I got disillusioned with it. And so, you know, I'd, I'd done pretty well in my career. So I had the ability to sell my place in London, and I bought a you know beautiful house on the side of a mountain outside a fishing village in Spain, um, and uh, you know on a few quite a few acres where I grew my own almonds, olives, oranges, all my fruit and veg, all of that stuff. That was idyllic. Um, and the idea was okay. How do I generate income? Income is the most important thing, not capital. Everybody gets this wrong all the time. The richest man in the world is the person who gets you know large amounts of income that comes in each and every year, not a large amount of capital. Capital is actually a hindrance. Um, so I thought maybe I could write and not spend my capital. So that was the start of GMI. I thought if I could just get you know five or six clients, you know I can cover all my costs of living. I don't spend my capital. You know I could do that indefinitely only write once a month so it wasn't going to take all my time up so uh it didn't happen that way I ended up it ended up being quite a big business um but um but that 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 was basically what it is and you know that's what retirement i think is it's it's an exchange of your time for the freedom that you can have with it and the trade-offs that that comes you know so the trade-off was yes i wasn't going to hit you know a huge win from running a hedge fund but I was going to hit an even bigger home run in quality of life. And that trade-off for me uh, was, I think, the best trade-off on earth. And, you know, I've continued to make that trade-off on and off. Now, starting a startup like Real Vision, we're now, I don't know, 80, 90 people around the world. You know, it's it's (laughs) full-time and full-on. Um, but that's okay because I decided to dedicate my time to this for a few years because I really wanted to do this. And, you know, it's generating value um, in terms of the value of the business is growing significantly. Um, you know, it's going to be a significant wealth generator for many. Um, and it's very enjoyable. And it was a mission that I wanted to do. But I still do it living in the Cayman Islands, living between a small island of little Cayman um, which has got like 140 people, beautiful nature, live on the beach there, or Grand Cayman, where I live most of the time, where the Real Vision headquarters is. There's only about 10 of us in this building now. Um, And um, I also, yeah, that's where I mainly live. And that's, you know, a small island as well. Um, So the quality of life is extremely good because every weekend I'm on a Caribbean beach holiday. So, Raul, I want to talk about the markets in general. So we are now in this everything bubble, which just keeps going on and going on and going on. Um, so when we look at the 
if, when we have this collapse and people will look at, yeah, stock buybacks, they'll look at quantitative easing, Robin Hood. Do you think Bitcoin might get thrown into that mix? In terms of being liquidated in a... Yeah, so if we do get this, if if we do get this overextended sell-off that a lot of, you know, very clever people have been expecting and by all metrics, we are very long a tooth, we're overextended. Um, I think QE has probably thrown out the measuring gauge for how we how we supposed to measure stuff. But with yeah, the Bitcoin price appreciation that we're seeing, if things get sold off, if we do have this another 2008 event where we just get a liquidation, we need to get back to fair market value. Does Bitcoin get thrown in to, oh, this bull run was just part of that euphoria? I don't think so. It'll clearly get hit because there's people who are doing it on margin. There's people who need capital for other things. You know, hedge funds, some hedge funds have it, but it's not broad based within that hedge fund portfolio or the people who have to systemically reduce risk. So yes, there'll be a sell-off, but there's a bit of magic here, like with gold this time around as well, is that the answer to a sell-off is more central bank printing. And... The answer to an economic event that continues, let's say it's driven by an economic event, let's say a new strain of COVID makes all vaccinations worthless, right? Random event that nobody's expecting. And so the world economy is slower for longer. Well, the answer is going to be more handouts. The handouts are more likely to be invested in crypto probably than the stock market right now because it's becoming the trendy thing. You know, the Elon Musk and that kind of movement actually makes a big difference to the psychology of, you know, that broad-based millennial investor, somebody who's, who wants to get a, get a way out because they think, well, my 1500 bucks, I could kind of spend it on a few meals and pay off some of my credit card, or I can see if I can make some real money from it. That's the mindset that we've seen, and it's an interesting mindset. Um, you know, there's a there's an opportunity that they cancel student debts in the U.S. as well. So cancel student debts, give people money. Um, I think some of that stimulus goes into the crypto markets, and I think rightly so. And I think that any kind of downside of markets, a big risk off, leads to more central bank action, which leads to Bitcoin's value proposition going up. So I think we're in this this beautiful phase. Um, this virtuous cycle, this reflexive loop that keeps driving Bitcoin higher. The actual thing that stops Bitcoin going up for a while is economic normality. No stimulus, no handouts, growth chugging along at 2%. Then you kind of get bored out of your Bitcoin position. Mm-hmm. Um, would force people to take profits and cash your crypto chips for lifestyle chips. That's how I see it. Uh, until that point, and we're nowhere near that yet, um, there's going to be ongoing demand. Yeah, talking about stimulus, I just think of what Einstein said, insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, we'll see. One other narrative I want to ask you about is we're hearing that a strong US dollar is potentially or could lead to weaker equity markets. How does that correlation work? Because, I mean... Generally, globally, it's pretty straightforward because the U.S. dollar is – the U.S. is 25% of world GDP and 88% of all foreign exchange transactions on Earth and of all world trade. So the world is massively reliant on dollars. If the price of dollars goes up, it costs you more. It's as simple as that. 
So, you know, what you find is as the price of the dollar goes up, the price of things like oil go down. So everyone loses revenue around the world. And there's a shortage of dollars when that happens. So it kind of it forces the dollar higher over time. Um, for the US stock market, uh, it's more complicated. International firms um, um, sell less product abroad because their products are more expensive. So generally speaking, a strong dollar, a, a dollar that's at a decent level is okay. A dollar that's rising fast is unmanageable for everybody because it's basically a disruptive event in an asset that there's not enough supply of. I know that's bizarre in the world of central bank printing, but actually there's not enough dollars for all the borrowers around there. Um, so that becomes an inability to pay off your debts. So what I'm thinking, I read this ages ago that, and you tell me what you think is hypothesis. If we have a stronger dollar, presumption is people are buying dollars. That's where the appreciation is coming from. People are buying dollars. They're looking for somewhere to sit it. In this day, very, very low interest rates, we're not going to be sitting on cash. So we'll be looking at potentially buying more equities, hence stronger dollar. You want to move that into somewhere. You move into a dollar-denominated asset, hence equities, which you'll get capital growth and greater yield than you are with bonds. What do you think of that scenario? Um, yes, but you're accepting higher risk too, because as you've just told me, the equity market's all-time record valuations, all-time record positioning. So you're accepting higher risk for that potential reward, while bonds are low risk, low reward. But there is some price appreciation that could happen. If bond yields go to zero in the US, the price of bonds goes up actually quite a lot. So um, I'm not entirely sure that that's the case. My guess is more money goes into bonds than goes into equities. Um, because usually when the dollar rallies, it's because there is some stresses in the world. So everyone panics into the dollar. So normally that's a bond positive environment. You have the other side of the dollar smile, which is when global growth is booming and the US dollar does well because money piles into US assets. That is kind of what's been happening over the last three weeks as, gold, as the dollar's kind of decoupled from some of these other things. Um, jury's out uh, where we are in that cycle still. I still think that we have a risk of going back towards the dollar fear and need to buy dollar scenario before we might slosh through the other side. Um, and I'm not sure because how much people already own dollar assets, how much appreciation really comes um, in, a, in a kind of higher, higher growth world. I think it goes all into emerging markets, which have underperformed for 15 years. So I think that if the dollar falls, buy emerging markets, go to the beach. If the dollar goes up, um, then um, then you want to own bonds and you want to own crypto and gold and stuff like that, because it's telling you that there's something slightly worse about the global economy. So we've had these correlations, these um in the markets that people have accepted, for example, the 60-40 equities to bond portfolio, um, dollar goes up, commodities go down. At some stage, and especially now that we are at the beginning of a 100-year cycle for you know those of us that read the fourth turning, that's inarguably uh, where we are, wouldn't this be a stage where these correlations break and we enter new stages? Well, with commodities, no, because commodities are priced in dollars. So until you show me, and I think it's already happening. Until you show me a move away from that 88% of all world trade is in dollars and 69% of all reserves are held in dollars, 
once you show me that is changing, then we can talk about a new world. I think that is the financial part of the fourth turning. And I think the IMF have been telling us about it, and New Bretton Woods, we need a new currency system. We need central bank digital currencies. We need to move away from the dollar. The ECB, the Bank of England, the PBOC, I mean, everybody said it. So they're trying to build rails where SWIFT is not the, the, the payments rails for the world, that they can build basket currencies using, um, using digital currencies. I explained to many people, why should South Africa, Australia, Brazil, Canada, or forget Canada, Brazil, Australia, um, and South Africa, why should they get penalized every time the dollar goes up or down when their main trade counterparts, Australia's 79% of all Australian trade is China and Japan. So why the dollar? So people need to start pricing commodities in currencies that matter for both the producers and the consumers. So there should be a basket, a commodity basket, let's say, that makes more sense. So it's stable or a broader based basket that moves away from that dollar weighting. This is all coming. All of this, the change, the structural change, we've only just started to see. But over the next 10 years, we'll see much, much bigger changes at central bank level, government level, um, fintech level, crypto level, banking level, I mean, the whole lot. It's very exciting. Because would you say that the tipping point for, all right, we do need to find an alternative to the dollar was when BNP Paribas was fined by the WTO for selling oil to the Sudan because it was Sudan was blacklisted in the US. And the fund was because it was a French company to the Sudan, US was not involved, but they used the US dollar. So, well, well, also everybody signed the Iran agreement and then the US backed out. And the Europeans are pissed that the Americans stopped them trading with Iran. Kind of how dare they? India is furious that they're not allowed to buy gas from Iran. It's their neighbor. They've traded with them for 10,000 years. Why would you do, you know, that? it's that kind of stuff. Russia got cut off from the SWIFT payment system. So there's a lot of people who are unimpressed with the U.S. ability to wield power. But it's not just the power element. I mean, that's tough shit. America has the biggest military and the biggest economic force. Um, it's not so much that. It's that the financial system got ahead of itself with this euro dollar market, which is the offshore dollars that get created by offshore banks, not offshore banks, banks in Europe, banks in Japan, they, banks in South Korea, they create dollars. And that all of those linkages are now unmanageable because the Fed can print money and it still doesn't get to the South Korean car manufacturer because unless the bank gives it to them, it doesn't get there. So nobody's able to control this. And that's the big problem here is nobody can control money. Um, at local level, it's fine. Everything works pretty well. But it's at that global level where nobody knows what to do. And what we've done is we've left a bankrupt zombie European banking system and a bankrupt zombie Japanese banking system in this process who were big dollar borrowers, big dollar creators, starved them of dollars via regulation. And this is part of the mess we're in. So it, the mess is at every level. It's not you know a simple you know, central bank, you know, money printer goes brr. It's like nothing functions like it should do. Everything is way too reliant 
on a system that's gotten out of control and everybody knows it. So speaking of uh, central banks being irresponsible, you recently said that you're irresponsibly long. Can you explain that? Yeah, so I basically saw what was... I've been waiting for this moment for Bitcoin and macro to meet. It arrived, Bitcoin sold off and created this beautiful chart pattern, this big wedge. And I'm like, I know what this is. I know what this is. And the moment it starts to break out, I then started allocating a significant amount of my liquid net worth, you know, the money I've got available to invest. And then I started looking at the charts of Bitcoin versus other assets. I'm a macro guy. I look at everything. I look at commodities. I look at stock markets. I look at currencies. And Bitcoin's basically starting to accelerate its outperformance versus everything. So much so that I coined it the, the super massive black hole, where almost investing in any other asset was going to be inferior to Bitcoin. So at that point, I went, I sold my gold, did everything else, just chucked every single penny I had into, I mean, literally every penny I had. I'm doing work on my house. That's the only cash balance I have to pay the builders so that they don't stop doing the building work because I'm in a rented apartment right now waiting for my house to be finished. <laughs> but once that's done, um, but that's every single penny because I, you get once in your lifetime, maybe twice, a bet that is so superior in every way over a period of time, and I'm calling that the next 12 months, um, that it makes no sense. And the upside is so big that it can be a life-changing event if you do it. So that's why I did it. And I then subsequently, you know, any new cash flow I've had in, I've put it back in. Um, I also diversified to Ethereum because I think Ethereum is going to outperform Bitcoin over time. And then I've also added a very small basket of other um, um, alt tokens just to get my hand in the market. And I think they will outperform for liquidity risk purposes when you're deeper into a bull market, the riskier markets tend to rally more. So Raul, I remember when, I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, you sold your Bitcoin around $3,000. Then you got back in. I remember reading the report. Did something in Bitcoin change or did your understanding or perception of Bitcoin change to get you back in? So technologies go through S-curve moments. And the S-curve is when, and businesses do as well, it's when there's a, you get some adoption, starts working, and then there's a threat. Does your business model work? Do you know what's doing? With Bitcoin, the S-curve moment, it's gone through several. There was the Mount Gox was the first, you know, 2013, the banning in China, a bunch of existential questions. It could have been the end of Bitcoin. Then we had an S-curve moment in 2017, which was the Forks. And I'm did I'm like I do not know how this is going to play out. I don't understand the risks. Um, I'm out, and I've made ten times my money. I'm like, I'm out. Then we go through crypto winter. We come through the other side, and it survived it all, and was the dominant player. So its dominance was the highest in the market, and the forks had failed, and so that was interesting. So then two people got me essentially back in. One was Dan Tapiero was tapping me on the shoulder saying, well, you need to get back into Bitcoin. We need to talk about this. And it was early. Um, it was a year too early still. 
Um, but it got on my radar screen because Dan and I talked about it and I saw that the whole space had evolved even further in the background without anybody realizing, attracting more and more talent into the space. I'm like, okay, talent comes first, the output comes second, you know, new products, new developments, new investments. So that got on my radar screen and then I saw plan B stocks a flow model um, and that pushed me over the line. That was like, okay, I've got a framework because I've actually developed a stock to flow model well prior to that in 2012. I was probably the first person to do it, but not in a much less sophisticated way. It was kind of a conceptualized, hey, maybe Bitcoin is worth a lot more than we think if it's valued like gold, et cetera. So, um, so those two things made me realize the timing was right. Um, I didn't do anything really about it. Um, I, start, I started buying in 2019. Uh, into the choppy sell-off, the bounce, and the yeah, you know, up to ten thousand back down again, up to ten thousand back down, um, and then you know really just went all in from the, the break of ten thousand. Yeah, that's something that you mentioned that the people behind Bitcoin, the projects in Bitcoin, that's something as well that we find um, people coming into space respond to is when we say, "Here are the people working behind Bitcoin," and there's the old adage: "Would you rather a good idea or good people?" You want good people because the wrong people can stuff up a good idea. With Bitcoin, you're getting both. It's the idea whose time has come, but also the caliber of the people working, the Bitcoin core developers is phenomenal. Oh, yeah. I mean, amazing people. Amazing people. Uh, and the vision they've got and the ability to stay the course and understand what it is they're guardians of uh, is truly inspiring. Gordon, I'm all out of questions. Do you have any more? I had one more. It's just a, a quick one about gold. You, uh, I think you sold all your gold. Yeah, the ETF. So, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. You just remind me of something. I oh, know. Um, so you've sold all your gold, Rail. You don't have any place for gold in your portfolio at this point in time. So it's not like uh, I'm not Bitcoin forever. That's all I'm ever going to own. I'm a macro guy. I look for risk reward. I look for opportunities. Biggest opportunity I've ever been given, and I'm going to take it with both hands. What do I do at the end of this? How much of my crypto will I keep? How much will I put into other investments? How much will I save? I don't know. Um, but I do think gold has probably got a nice long bull run to come. So I don't doubt that I will own gold again, and I've owned gold many, many times over the last 30 years. So you know, it's part of my core you know, asset toolkit. So yes, but right now, as I said, I'm all about the time horizon. This is it. This is the time horizon. Nothing else matters. And we can see, I mean, you know, Bitcoin's dwarfed any other asset already this year. Um, you know, so it's like, I think people are starting to understand what I was talking about. It's like, there is no point having another bet on. Any other bet on reduces the returns of your portfolio if you can stomach the risk. And I can, because I've done a lot of work on it. I'm comfortable with it. Um, so that's what I'll do. Now, when I talk about being irresponsibly long, to qualify that is I don't have any debt. I don't use leverage. So it can all go to zero and I lose my savings. It's not my life savings because I own houses. I own stuff. I've been very lucky. Um, so that's how I think of it is I, I don't have leverage. Nobody can take away my house. I've got income. So if I lose that, I've still got my income, which is why income is so powerful. So I can take very large risks with this money uh, because I'm actually pretty secure. 
So when I talk about being irresponsibly long, it's like in portfolio terms. Nobody generally goes 100% all in, but I am, and I'm happy with it. <laughs> so I've so just been reminded... Oops, sorry, Gordon, I keep interrupting. Go okay. ahead. I was just going to say, perhaps if you're investing in other assets, that means you're shorting Bitcoin. Well, exactly, on a relative basis, which is the conclusion I got to. The supermassive black hole is, why even bother? At this point in the cycle, why bother? Just... The only answer, the right answer is because I want to diversify. That's okay too. Um, I get that. I choose not to. I choose to take the con most concentrated bet I could possibly take. So Raul, I've come from a uh, background in trading for almost 10 years now, but I'm uh, purely trading off the charts. I wait for momentum to pick up and then I'm in. So I'm, you know, the football field, I'm between the 20 and the 80 yard line. With macro, it's a bit different. You're looking for the idea, and then you're kind of waiting for the rest of the world to catch up with your idea. Am I summarizing that accurately? That is my understanding of the difference. So um, macro, if... macro, you have to live in the future. It is the knock-on effects. You are not trading now. If you do, you will lose money. What you're trading is the future state. So future state in this, the hypothesis is financial system needs to change. Okay, and Bitcoin is one of the solutions. And so there I now have an investment hypothesis. Bitcoin versus gold, look at the market cap, stock to flow. Great. Then you come back to the chart. When's the time for that? Because I could have been in a year too early and sat around with dead money for a while. And that takes up intellectual capital and time. Um, so you need to think about your time allocation. So then the chart was the thing that converts it to me. Sometimes I'll start the other way. Somebody flipped me a chart, and I'm just doing some work on it now, on European carbon credits. It's a futures market, very liquid. And the chart is like epic. When I see a chart like that, I'm like, okay, I need to know what this is. So I'm just going in the deep dive of figuring out what that is because I know there's a big macro play because in the back of my mind is I understand there's a move towards ESG. I understand what's going on here. If this is a way to purely and cleanly play it, it's magnificent. So macro, often you end up being early because your hypothesis is in the future. So often if you're looking at a longer term hypothesis, you're using monthly charts and you'll know monthly charts take a while to play out. You know, one month is another bar. So you're often anticipating in advance and then you know it has another setback before it goes. So I try and wait till I try and wait and I'm always early. So I get this wrong. I try and wait for my monthly, daily, weekly charts to line up if I'm looking for a big secular trend change. And this is where I personally, um, and I cannot plug real vision enough to anyone listening. Um, it was Gordon told me about Bitcoin from a tech perspective. I didn't get it at the time. It was, I remember an interview with just you and Grant Williams in a dark room where you talked about Bitcoin. Very and me, early I mean, days. Very early days, yeah. interview ever, I think. Oh, really? Well, that one interview where you explained Bitcoin from an economic perspective, that was a light bulb moment for me because I come from the economics, political economics background. So to me, that opened my mind to, oh, there's this whole other world in Bitcoin. It's just not, you know, something like second life on the internet, uh, a currency for gamers. Um the other thing I want to mention is bringing things to my radar. So this would not have been on my radar if not for Real Vision, but uranium has been on Real Vision for years now. I've been saying about the potential option for uh, uranium, and that's now starting to pick up. And Hugh Hendry just tweeted about this recently, uh, this week, I think. So 
my original question, which you've already answered was, as a macro investor, how do you know when you're early and how do you know when you're wrong? To answer your question, the chart will tell you whether you're early or not. The uranium thing, I was in the uranium trade, but I gave up a year and a half ago, two years ago, because I realized it was it was dead money. Because you need to see the confirmation and you need to see a catalyst. And, you know, Cameco shutdowns and stuff weren't the catalyst. The catalyst is the actual increase in demand from um, power sta- for power stations to be built. And I have not seen that hypothesis play out properly yet. Uh, you know, Europe is still decommissioning. And I don't see, you know, a massive rise in India, for example. They seem, most people seem to want to go to alternative energy. So I've not seen it play out um, in the way that we expected. Now, could it be doing it now? Possibly. But yes, it can be early. But, you know, early's fine if you're three months early. Early's not fine if you're two years early um, because you're actually you're basically short something else instead. You know, your opportunity cost is too high to be early for that long. Unless it's a very small part of your portfolio and you don't care and you're using it to put it on your radar screen. But really, life's too short. None of the best macro investors I've known do that. Value investors do. Macro investors don't. They wait for the confluence of flows, catalysts, charts. Uh, Wait for that. Take your money when you can in the fastest possible way. Well, fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm all out of questions, Faris, and we're conscious of your time, Raoul. Do, do you have any concluding thoughts or perhaps some advice for any uh, upstart investors, any millennials out there? Yeah. You don't get many opportunities as a millennial to generate wealth in the same way the baby boomers got when they could buy equities with a P of seven and with um, interest rates at 18%. That's what they got at 30 years old. The millennials at 30 year old have got all-time record high stock market valuations, all-time record high property valuations, all-time record low bond yields, all-time record low credit spreads. So don't expect to do what your parents did. What you have to do is do something different. And this entire space, not just Bitcoin, but the entire digital asset industry is the future. And the upside is astronomical. So get involved early. Start chipping away. If you've got a PayPal account, just buy some Bitcoin. You know, stick a few hundred bucks in. Do what you can. Learn more about the space. Look at places to invest. Um, understand it's early days. It's a buy and hold. You'll make some bets that won't work. Some bets will do well. Um, but just think of that because this is the only way I can think of outside of betting on themselves, which is the single most important thing to do, building businesses, generating income, generating security for yourself. This is the only thing that I can see that can really do that. Yes, you can be lucky and find the right equity at the right time that does the right thing, you know, buying the next Apple. But here's an entire asset class and a huge space, which is under-owned. You don't get this. Mm. I never got that in my lifetime. You know, as a Gen Xer in the middle of this, I never had that. Not one point was everything cheap. Um, so we've had to navigate the middle ground. Um, it's um, it's the boomers that got it cheap and the millennials. They've got something cheap, but they just don't know it yet. 
Yeah, that's excellent advice. I remember as a kid, I'm a Gen Xer growing up, and all I heard was, oh, put your money in the cash and save. So, well, no, it's not going to do anything. The diluting effect of you know, cash these days is ridiculous. Um, but yeah, based on that, something else you said in an interview was, yeah, build a business. And um, this is just something that Gordon and I are grateful to you, to Grant Williams for, for starting Real Vision that really inspired us to do what we do. We could have, Gordon and I could have made a lot of money if we just flaunted a six-page white paper and threw it in the ICO market, but we wanted to build something long-term. We wanted to teach people about Bitcoin, open them up um, to the world of Bitcoin as Real Vision has done with geopolitics and finance. So we are personally very grateful for your leadership in this space, Raul. Thank you. Look, good luck with what you guys are doing. It's important work. You know, you've got the secular tailwind behind you. Um, you know, get your heads down and go for it. That's been a real much. privilege, Raul, having you on. Thank you so much. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks for your time, Raul. Not at all. Cheers. Thanks for watching or listening. Please visit coincompass.com free to register to our socials and discover other free content. Subscribing, liking, and following helps this content remain ad-free. Until next time.